Okay, everyone. Here we are for the last lap of the Ramayana. Do we have any questions or thoughts or anything before we plunge into the story? Okay. So, Hanuman, as you may recall, went to Lanka and he found Sita and he spoke with Sita and he reassured her and then he was captured by Ravana. He was taken all over the city. They set his tail on fire and then he set Lanka on fire. That was his response. And then he leapt back across the sea and then the monkeys saw him coming. And that's where we are right now. Okay, so Hanuman is now back on the shore with Rama and Lakshman and the monkeys, but now he has found Sita and he's ready to tell the story. So first he, he begins his story by remembering Sita. From now on, his, he's the only one who's seen her, so he bows mentally to her, and then he begins to tell the whole story, how he went across the ocean, how the mountain tried to stop him, how the Rakshashas tried to stop him. And um, they say that if you ever need... To, to, if you're ever seeking success in any undertaking, you open the Ramayana and you hear about how Hanuman crossed the ocean and found Sita. And you either read the original part or you read Hanuman retelling the tale because that inspires you with the power required to succeed at a very difficult task. It's a really a very interesting uh, sort of idea that they have. So... Um, the, the monkeys, knowing that Hanuman has now found Sita, are all excited, and they, they're talking about every time the monkeys get excited, they always have some idea. They can just go across, they can just rescue uh, Sita, they can just bring him back. They don't have to go back and tell Sugriva and tell the other kings. You know, they're just one of four bands that have gone off in four directions, and their time span for looking for Sita had elapsed. They were going to, as you recall, fast until death. But now that they know that Sita is there, now they just want to go directly. But uh, they just think that first the, the king, Jambavan, the king of the bears, said first we should listen to what Hanuman has to say and then Han- uh, Rama will make this decision. This is not our decision. So they, um, they run back. They, they, they travel back to Sugriva, to the kingdom, because Hanuman has told Rama, now they all know, now they want to wait no time at all so the whole entourage goes back to, where, to the kingdom of where Sugriva is to tell him that they know where Sita is. Let's gather the armies. And so Hanuman goes right to his king and he says, um, the Sita, I have found her. The goddess of purity, Sita, I have found her. And this is also held up as the ideal way to deliver a message. <laughs> you deliver the essence of the message right away in as few words as possible instead of waiting, making the one waiting wait to find out what the news is. So the goddess of purity, Sita, I have found her. This is what Hanuman says to the king. So he says, he reports that she's safe and well, and now we need to go and rescue her. And Hanuman also does not exaggerate his exploits before his king. Hanuman, in addition to his many other qualities, is the soul of humility, of concise speech, and he doesn't say more about himself than is necessary in order to convey his message. So Hanuman um, uh, represents to all of us his devotion to Sita, his devotion to Rama, 
but also the way he conducts himself. A man of power and competence does not have to tell everyone how competent he is. Okay. So he talks, he tells about how difficult, however, Sita's situation is, that Ravana is really putting her to the test and that she's in, in a very austere, very troubled circumstances and that they, they must rush quickly to rescue her. And then he, he, to Rama, he also tells that uh, Sita has uh, given him the jewel off of her forehead. And she has also told Hanuman about several private incidences where the, only the two of them were present, um, just so that Hanuman will be able to verify for sure to Rama that in fact he has seen Sita. Not that Rama distrusts him, but this is how he proves. He, he speaks of a time when her tilak washed off and Rama put it on, a time when a crow attacked her. The stories that Sita told to Hanuman, Hanuman repeats them to Rama, and then he gives the jewel to Rama, and Rama's overcome and with the fact that this has come from Sita and hearing from Hanuman all um, that he's been through. Okay? So... Now they decide that it's time um, to go off, and there's no... Uh, Han- Rama says to Hanuman, you know, what could I give you? What could I, how could I possibly reward you? But for the devotee, just the pleasure of serving the Lord is sufficient reward. So Hanuman obviously asks for nothing. Then he begins to talk about all of the, the city, the fortifications, the army, because Hanuman has been a perfect messenger. He's gone, he's accomplished his task, he's brought back evidence of his task, and while he was there, he creatively saw the possibilities of his situation, which is he allowed Ravana to capture him, and then Ravana paraded him all over town, and he observed everything that he saw from the point of view of attacking the city and defeating it. And so Hanuman brings all this back to Rama. So we read this story for all the different aspects that it teaches us, but in Hanuman's behavior, again, we see exactly how a person who is a messenger, has given an assignment, has been asked to carry something out, that with creativity and initiative. Rama says, sometimes when people lose something that is dear to them, after a time, the memory fades and it doesn't mean so much to them anymore. Rama says, the loss of Sita is as fresh in this moment as it was the day that it happens. And now is the time, and he can, Rama faints dead away at the thought of all that she is suffering, but Lakshman comforts him and says, now we will go. So, meanwhile, back in Lanka, Ravana calls a council of all his ministers, and, you know, we have to understand about Ravana that he's evil, but he's also powerful. And much of his power has come from austerity and from concentration. And even though he's uh, determined in his own desires and doesn't have the greatness that Rama has of dedication to Dharma, nonetheless, he has his loyal supporters and he has made a prosperous city and all his people are well-to-do and he has many wives who, who care for him. And so you, you sort of look at it, it's never exactly black and white. He's not a person who was completely despicable would not have the power to become great even in his evil. 
This is the this is the other aspect of these epics is that characters are not one dimensional. So Ravana is ultimately um, not who we want to follow, but nonetheless, so he's a little Ravana's a little frightened because he captured this monkey and he paraded him around town and it backfired terribly because of the fire and now this great monkey has run away. So he sort of begins apologetically to his counsel as he puts it. Something has happened that never happened before. Somebody has breached our, our fortress. Somebody has made it inside. Um, and the people are a little frightened at this point. And the ministers respond just as Ravana hoped they would. We're powerful. We'll, we're strong. There's nothing to fear. And they recited all the victories that he had and all the glories that he had and all the powers that he had. Not People who are flatterers are not always our best friends. And this is another factor that comes out here. So one by one, all the great heroes stand up and tell Ravana that we can defend you. We have nothing to fear from this one person. And they come up with various plans about how they can trick Rama. And finally, his younger brother, Vibhishana, stands up. And he says... What all these people are saying to you, my brother, he's the younger brother, he said, it sounds very sweet, but it's simply not true. You have acted contrary to Dharma, and it's going to lead you to grief and ruin. And this is not, if you listen to this people, these people and you start this war, he said, it will bring absolute ruin on our people. Let us think about Dharma. And then Vibhishana looks at his brother and he says, it was wrong of you to take Sita from her husband. If you wanted Sita to be your wife, you should have challenged Rama and fought with Rama, and then she would have admired you. But this kidnapping and bringing here was against Dharma, and now the consequences of that adharmic action are beginning to come forth. It's not um, unreasonable for a king to exert his will, but he has to follow certain ways. It's uh, cowardly. And to just steal a woman, what, how can the woman defend herself? Where is the glory in that? But if he challenges a great warrior and succeeds, then at least he has the right to claim the wife if he wants her. I mean, we can argue it from different points of view, but this is certainly not the right way. So he, uh, Vibhishana says, we've experienced one warrior from Rama's army, and look what he did to our city. He burned down a great deal of our city. He made a mockery of our, our warriors, he killed people in battle. He, he, was, he escaped from their um, abstract mantric powers. He said, and Vibhishana says, you know, brother, I know you're going to be angry with me, but I'm just telling you the truth. You need to listen. So Ravana was not unaffected by what Vibhishana said because he has begun to become a little nervous, even though he um, has a lot of power and a lot of confidence in his power, in his heart of hearts, he knows he's done wrong here. And of course, when you know in your heart that you've done the wrong thing, you're more vulnerable to criticism. But that also sometimes makes you more defensive about what you've done wrong. So the council is dismissed. And the next day, at daybreak, again, Vibhishana goes to his older brother, and he says, he tries again to persuade him. He said, I'm not going to flatter you. I'm going to try to save you. I'm the one who really loves you. Ever since you've brought Sita here, 
Bibishana says, there have been evil omens all over the city. He said, snakes have invaded places of worship. They're ants in the offerings in the temples. <laughs> you know, the cows are not giving milk like they did before. The elephants, the camels, they fall sick and they won't eat. Medicines are not working so where so well. Crows are seen in places that they are not normally seen. Foxes are entering the city and howling. But it's interesting. Part of what's described here is that once the balance is thrown off, then everything in nature responds. Why would the cows not give milk? Why would the foxes come into the city? Why would the crows leave their habitual places? Because the magnetism has been disturbed. Because a powerful person like Ravana, who is the ruler of this uh, country and also has in himself a great deal of energy and magnetism, if that energy and magnetism goes off, then everything goes off. The master had this fascinating article where he talked to just about, he was talking about uh, the world and he was talking about um, the certain actions of the country, country invading somewhere in Africa created uh, bad weather in Europe and the bad weather in Europe created violence in another part. And he just sort of traces this whole thing around the globe. Weather patterns, um, violent actions, flu epidemics, and he just describes it all as being connected. Because we, this is an interwoven web of consciousness. Nowadays we're having you know, a lot of greed and violence in the world and then the weather patterns are not following what they would follow. And it's right here in the Ramayana. So Vibhishana says again to Ravana, you cannot disregard these things. You must return Sita to her husband. Ravana is just crazy for Sita. And the other example of this book is just how lust just completely confuses your mind. In the, uh, the scriptures, they talk about wine, sexuality, and, and money, which is, really represents power, that these are the three main delusions. And the reason they're the main delusions is because when you get trapped by these, your judgment can be disturbed in so many ways. And this whole story of Ravana is he conceived of this illicit desire to have this woman. And everything else followed. He completely destroyed his life. And he, he was obsessed with her and he would not give it up. So, so he went back to the hall and he got everybody to come again. And Ravana spoke again. Everybody was all honoring him. And he says... He, he starts by announcing, he said, I have, my desire for Sita is, is not, not negotiable. There is no chance that I'm going to send, send her back. And then he tells an untruth. He says, she asked for a year's time to consider it, and I gave it to her. In fact, it was, she, she vowed to him that she would never yield to him, but he was unable to accept that, and so he gave her a year to threaten her. He said, I've never been defeated in, bat- in battle, a great monkey came here and caused a lot of mischief, but that, how could they get across the sea? One monkey could cross the sea, but the sea has always protected us. And so there they are. And he said, uh, now that he's, he also, Ravana has an, a, another brother, and that brother is Kumbhakarna. And Kumbhakarna is a famous figure in the story also. He's one of the most powerful warriors on the planet, but Kumbhakarna had such a 
voracious appetite for food that he was beginning to consume the whole world because he was eating so much. So he was cursed that he would sleep half the year or that he would, he would often be in this deep sleep. So Ravana says, well, I would have consulted you all earlier about this, but I was waiting for Kumbhakarna to wake up. So now Kumbhakarna has woken up. You know, see, when a person is beginning to cover their own bad deeds, they begin to mix truth and falsehood a little bit. I was just waiting for Kumbhakarna. I would have asked you earlier. Sita asked for a year, so I've given her a year. You know, a little bit of half-truth in there, just because we're, we, we get confused. We start trying to sort of seek a way to make it work for us, and this is exactly what Ravana is doing. Whenever we see ourselves doing such things or see others doing those things, we need to be just a little suspicious about what their true motives are. So Kumbhakarna hears about what Ravana has done, and he just speaks, frankly, you should have spoken to us before you took this woman. Now you've jeopardized all of us. What are you doing? What you did was wrong. But then he sees that Ravana's not going to be persuaded. And then Kumbhakarna says, if you're not going to give him back, he says, well, I will stick with you in any case because I'm your brother and I will do it. Just a moment, let me find myself. Vibhishana then becomes even more angry. And he, he says, and, and he says, if you reject my advice, he said, I can't support you anymore. And then Vibhishana decides that Ravana no longer represents Dharma. So even though he's his own brother in his own country, he says, I refuse to stay with you. And so he just walks out of the council room and he's going to go away. And then Kumbhakarna says, by contrast, you have committed a great sin. You have behaved in a completely foolish manner. You have violated Dharma, but I have pledged my life to support you. And so even if I'm going to my death, I will stand by you. So people um, think about the two responses that the two brothers had, and sometimes they argue back and forth. Was it more honorable for Kumbhakarna to just stick with his brother because he had always lived in his palace, he was his man, he owed it to him to fight? Or was, did Vibhishana make the right decision, which is now that my brother has turned his back on Dharma, it's not, I refuse any longer to stay with him. People argue back one way or another, which way it ought to be. So now Vibhishana decides to cross the sea because he can fly. Rakshashas can fly. So he goes across the sea. He's going to offer himself to Rama. He really feels that his brother has dishonored his throne and dishonored his country, and Vibhishana is going to offer himself to Rama. So they're all now, you know, camped, at the edge of the ocean, waiting to go, to go over to Lanka, and they see this Rakshasha in the air, and he just speaks openly and boldly to them. I am Vibhishana, I am the younger brother of Ravana, I, am, I have left him because he has left the path of Dharma, and I'm here to offer my services to you. And then there's a lot of discussion among Sugriva and Hanuman and Rama and Lakshman about, is this a trick? Should we trust him? Should we you know, allow him into our camp? What should we do? They talk about maybe we should question him. Well, if he's really 
that clever, he's going to be able to evade our questioning. And finally, Rama says um, that he, if, he were, if he had come to trick us, he wouldn't come in such an open manner. And besides that, when anyone takes refuge even in, in my, takes refuge in me, in the Lord, so to speak, although that's not actually how he says it, he says, then I have to accept him. So, Rama says, if a man comes as a friend, how can I reject him? It is against the law of my life. So, Vibhishana comes and explains, you know, that here he is now and he wants to help. And Rama um, looks at him and sees, you know, he feels this is an honorable man and he really... uh, He's really sincere in his desire. And he was accepted. And Rama says, when I conquer Lanka, you will become the king. And even in that moment, he declares him king. Then there's the discussion, did Vibhishana just do this just to become the king? Well, that's not a dishonorable desire. After all, he was of the royal family, and now his brother had proven himself unworthy. So if that was his desire, still... And all of these different sort of nuances of dharma are weighed out. And as I've said many times about this story, in the context of Indian society, these are all very serious questions. Should Vibhishana really have done that? People will say to each other, maybe Kumbhakarna took the better role. What would you do if you were in such a position? Did he really just want to be king? Well, it was appropriate that he should become king. But in this way, very serious issues of right and wrong action are actually reflected upon in the context of this wonderful story. So in this way, young, young children and even adults, this becomes the moral compass. And that's how generations of uh, Indian people have actually considered extremely serious issues by both the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. What was the right thing to do? Was Rama correct in, in killing Vali just to put Sugriva on the throne, you know, did he have a right to do that? Should Rama have accepted Vibhishana so readily? You know, what if you, if you come in friendship, even if it's a question, can you just come open-heartedly? It's really fascinating and really fun to watch all of it. Okay, so... So, let me just find this. So, uh, Ravana also, being deluded in his um, desire, begins to imagine that somehow he can trick Rama. And in fact, it's also the duty of kings. Before they go at war, there's, there's a sequence. First you try to negotiate honorably, then you try to win by deceit, then you try to also to bribe, and only at the end you actually resort to force. The, both the Mahabharata and the Ramayana justify on the part of kings sending spies and so on. So um, Ravana sends a Rakshasha in disguise to try to persuade Sugriva to abandon Rama, to see if he can create dissension in the ranks. And Sugriva says, you know, just scorns it. Rama's the one who rescued me and put me back on the throne. How dare you even suggest that I would desert him? And this is, again, the mind of someone who's deluded by desire imagines that he can make dishonorable propositions to others and that they will jump at them. But honorable people just look and ask, why are you even suggesting such a thing? But to the dishonorable person, it seems like a reasonable idea. I'm going to just diverge for a moment because there's this marvelous story that 
um, was told by a man who, part of Ananda, who was the salesman for Ananda Books. And a time when Swami first came out with those little secret books, and the secret books were selling really well. And they were, oddly enough, we were sort of the first person to do those little kind of books in the, in the spiritual world, where little aphorisms in that form. Subsequently, it's become much more common. I mean, of course, other people made small books, but we really sort of pioneered that for a very short time. We sold lots and lots of books because we'd really found a niche that no one else was filling. Well, our salesman was at uh, one of the conferences, the one that may have been the big national book conference, and there was a, we had a distributing contract. We had an exclusive distributing contract with a relatively small company that was also doing really well with us because suddenly we all had a product that was really selling. And that distributor had been really good to us. But uh, our salesman was approached conceivably by Costco, I think is what it was, although it may have had a different name. It's called Price Club, I think, at that point, yeah. But anyway, they wanted to buy a whole lot of those books. But in order to do that, we had to go exclusively with their distribution. So all of a sudden, our salesman was in a little bit of a dilemma because we had an agreement with someone else, but wow, this was quite a contract over here. So he wasn't quite sure how to handle this, and he asked a number of people the advice of other more experienced business people. Every single person started by asking him, how much money would we make? And then after a little bit of time, our, our guy realized, oh, they're asking me what price. What's my price? At what point would I sell out my friend? And as soon as he realized that they all just assumed he would sell out his friend if the price was high enough, that he realized, no, I just don't think I can do this. Because if I pull this contract away from her, as a woman, as it were, if I pull this contract away from her, she's been depending on it too, just because I'll get more over here. It was a, it was a very interesting but that was everybody's question. Of course you'll sell out your friend if the price is high enough. And then he heard that question. I was reminded in that same way. Uh, this was some uh, story about a, a woman who... Uh, oh, she, she didn't have a full intelligence, whatever the pro- proper term is for that these days. She didn't have full development. She was disabled in her mind. But she became a good runner. And she got some notoriety. This was a true story. Got some notoriety nationally because she was in the Paralympics and she was running and so on like that. And she had a friend who was also like her and she'd been very loyal to this friend and he would perform, he would sing in little clubs everywhere. And she would always go and hear him sing. And President Clinton called up and wanted her to go jogging with him. That was the whole story. But she couldn't go because she had to go listen to her friend sing. And everybody thought she should just not go listen to her friend sing. She should go run with the President of the United States. And she said, what should I tell my friend, that I got a better offer? (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes. You know, just like we just turn away when it's in our self-interest to do so. So Ravana sends someone to Sugriva and try to persuade him. And he said, "Not, not, not a chance. So now... It really begins. Now they have to get across the ocean. Now they're all ready. They're all, they're all at the edge of the sea. All the machinations on all sides are done. Now they have to get across the ocean. And Rama sits down and he propitiates the ocean. You must help us to get across the ocean. And he sits and he does austerities and he prays and he fasts. And there's no response from the ocean at all. And finally Rama just loses his patience 
and he begins to shoot arrows into the ocean. And he begins to just start killing all the ocean creatures. And, you know, the ocean is becoming clogged with all the corpses because, Rama, I'm going to get across you and you're being rude to me. You're not helping me. Finally, the king of the ocean arises. He said, what you're asking is impossible. I can't part my waters. You know, I am bound by law the same as you are bound by laws. I can't betray my own nature merely because you asked me. He said, but I'll tell you how to build a bridge and what I will do for you is I will promise not to disturb it. <laughs> and it, it's interesting. It's, everything has a little nuance on it, isn't it? Rama wants to just force something to move other than it's going to move. And the ocean says we all have to cooperate in the right way. But Rama's got the ocean's attention because the ocean wasn't even coming to help him until he expressed with strength that I will destroy you unless you help me. So all the monkeys gathered the rocks and the stones and they did everything they did and they, everything they needed and everything the sea god said and they built this great causeway, as they call it. And then they, uh, just a moment. Okay, then they, they, they built this and they're going to come, come across the way. So now Ravana, they, their spies tell them that this, this impenetrable barrier, which has always protected us, which is this great, vast expanse of ocean, has now been breached by this army. What are we going to do? And now, once again, you know, a wise counselors try to help Ravana. In this case, it's his own grandfather. And he says, your time of good fortune is over. Every man's hour comes, and then the hour goes. You know, you are no longer, you can no longer trust that all the things that have protected you until now will continue to protect you because you have violated dharma. And it's also true, and Ravana illustrates this, that you, we get to a certain point of power, but if we violate that power, it's not ours by right. It's, it's ours by virtue of the way we live, by virtue of the magnetism we exerted to get it. And then after that, if we, if we break the laws that gave us that power, because Ravana got that power by tapasya, by willpower, by, by right action in his own context. Because merely to be a powerful king, that was his dharma. That's who he was supposed to be. But now he's done something terribly wrong. And he says, you know, to Ravana, gives him one more chance. And what's also happening here, repeatedly, is that men who are deluded often receive wise counsel and don't listen to it. And this is a, a cautionary tale for all of us when we find ourselves com- repeatedly besieged with people telling us that you're not doing the right thing. Listen to yourself. Don't just keep saying over and over again, oh, yes, I know it's right. Yes, I know it's right. Yes, I know it's right. So we have also in the story that even in Ravana's own household, in his own company, one of his two brothers, now his grandfather, comes and says to him, you must reconsider what you're doing. And he says, no, I won't. I'm not going to. And pride before a fall. He won't listen to anyone. His end is coming, and this is how it's going to be. So they get to the island of Lanka. They cross the causeway, Rama and his family, and they're camped outside the city, and they're waiting for the dawn to come and then they're going to fight. And they make, they make an agreement because it can get very confusing. So 
They, they instruct, Rama instructs all the monkeys and the bears, because everybody can change forms. The monkeys and the bears need to stay as monkeys and bears, because everybody needs to know who's fighting who here. And um, Vibhishana and uh, Vibhishana as the Rakshasha should look like a human, like Rama and Lakshman look like, so they can tell him from the others. And then the Rakshashas would never be so undignified as to take the form of either man or monkeys. And in this way, we can be sure that we'll always know who our enemies are. Okay. So, so Rama's army comes down from the, you know, the, the coast from the mountains, comes down to the city. And then now they're looking at the city and seeing how extraordinary it is, how beautiful it is, how well fortified it is. And Sugriva, seeing the palace, which you can see from where they're standing, where he assumes Ravana is, he becomes so filled with enthusiasm and energy and just sort of wild exuberance because these monkeys keep behaving like monkeys. And he just jumps all the way up to, where, to the porch of the palace where he finds Ravana standing there. And then he knocks his crown off of his head. And then Sugriva engages Ravana in, in hand-to-hand combat and they fight for a period of time and then Sugriva sort of has had enough, and then he comes back to the monkeys, and the monkeys cheer their king for this great and fabulous and daring thing that he has done. So everything begins very excitingly. <clears throat> and then Rama says, I am impressed, but a king should not run such risks. And again, Rama is giving us advice. You're in, you're in charge of your army, of your country. You, know, you, you have to be more respectful of your own person and of your own position. You can't just wildly give in to your impulses. You were lucky this time. So again, all these lessons are woven in here that we can't just think, oh, this is what I want to do. We have to also think about the implications of everything that happens. There's this very difficult um, lesson to learn if you're in a position of leadership or you're in a position where anybody is paying attention to you that you lose the freedom to just do exactly what you feel like doing, whether it's freedom of speech, freedom of action. This is the, um, the folly that people think the leader has all the power because, in fact, as soon as you're in a position, as a, I'm looking at you as a school teacher, you know, you, you, you can't even express your own personality because the children will imitate you. Yeah, and a school teacher, you look at, the children will imitate you. And so you do things, and then all of a sudden the children are doing it. And just in many ways, leadership imposes upon you great discipline and tapasya rather than great freedom. This little tiny example of Sugriva going off to do this wild thing, but what if he had been hurt? What if he'd been killed? To presume that kind of uh, invulnerability is unwise. So, So, one last chance. Rama feels he has to give... Ravana, one last chance, and he sends Sugriva's son, Angada, who's a powerful thing, and to go to Ravana and ask, say, if you even now, if you would restore Sita to me, then I will withdraw without doing battle with you. But if you fail to do so, it's the end of your life. So Angada goes there, and he goes into the council, and he makes the offer, and everyone just jeers at him, and they even try to capture him. But Angada is also very powerful, and he 
climbs up to the top of the highest tower of the palace and then he demolishes that. And so these are very bad omens. The first thing that happens is the monkey comes and knocks the crown off Ravana's head. Then his son comes and when they try to, to capture the messenger, which is dishonorable in itself, he knocks the top of the tower off. And then Rama issues his orders. We have done everything we can. Now, at ti- now is the time to fight. So, just before they're about to do battle, um, one of Ravana's spies goes back to him and says again, you know, Rama's army is very, very powerful. I don't really think we ought to battle him. Ravana has been given so many chances and he turns down every one of them. So instead, Ravana sends a couple of spies again to see what Rama is doing, but they're Rakshasha's disguise, but Vibhishana is there. And as soon as they come, Vibhishana says, these are Rakshasha's, I know who these are, these are spies for my brother, and we should, you know, capture them. And Rama says, no, he said, let's welcome them, let's show them around. You know, I want, I want Ravana to know. So they show him all of their... Uh, everything that they have and how powerful they are and what they're going to do. And then they sent him back to Ravana. And, of course, this was very strategic because they're frightened. They've seen what's out there and they, they recognize they know how dangerous they are. But uh, still, Ravana won't do it. Okay. So then... Ravana has one last idea, which is that he's going to get Sita to come over to his side, and he's going to do it by this way, by sorcery, by magic, sorcery, by magic. He creates something that looks like the severed head of Rama. So he goes to visit Sita, and he carries in this severed head of Rama, and he says, you know, your husband, look, here he's passed away, and of course, you know, she's terrified um, by this. And then she begins to cry and says, is this my fate that my husband has died? But then, just in that moment, the word comes to Ravana that Rama's army is moving in and that he needs to go and look to the defense of the city. So he runs away from Sita, leaving the gruesome head there. But as soon as he leaves, it falls to pieces because without Ravana's consciousness to hold the magic... And then one of the women of Ravana's own household is there. And she says to him, she says, Rama's army is here and even now he's coming into Lanka to rescue you. And he said, do not be afraid. Because she knows, even though she's a woman of his household, she, has, she can see that Ravana is wrong. No one is killed at your husband. It's only an illusion. So what happens is, instead of Ravana frightening Sita, now she knows for certain that Rama is on the way to rescue her. So whatever weakness and fear she's had is all gone. And then she begins to hear the sound of battle and the trumpets and the drums and the sound of the crying monkeys and she knows that her rescuers are almost there. So... Now they begin to fight, and everybody begins to fight, everybody else, and the great heroes send, and they come, and they go. And Indrajit is the son of Ravana, and he's a very powerful warrior. 
and he has a lot of boons from Indra, and he begins to fight against Rama and Lakshman, and he has these magic ways of doing things, and he has this astra, which is serpents, and he can shoot arrows, and the arrows turn into snakes, and then those snakes wrap around whoever he's trying to destroy, and then they are both immobilized and made unconscious. So Indrajit comes in, and after a great battle, he shoots Rama and Lakshman both, and they fall down seemingly dead on the battlefield, felled by this astra of Indrajit. And of course, everyone is very um, distressed by this, but Vibhishana, who saw them, he said, look at their faces, he said, Still, you can see the radiant uh, courage and spirit. They're, they're, they're not the faces of dead people, that this is just a, a, some kind of a spell. Just a second. So, Sugriva says, I know how they can be cured. There's a certain herb that they can, on this mountain, that we can get that herb and that'll cure them. But just when they're about to go that way, Garuda comes in. Now, Garuda is an eagle, and Lord Vishnu's every, every deity has an animal that they consider to be the vehicle for the animal. When you see pictures of the goddess Durga, she's always riding on a lion. And Vishnu, Vishnu's vehicle is Garuda, the eagle. And they're always together whenever you see the deity. Even when you see Ganesha, you see the little rat. The little rat is his animal totem. They always have an animal totem that goes with them. It's very complicated how the whole story works together. But Garuda comes, and Rama is an incarnation of Vishnu, is how they describe it. And Garuda is an eagle, and he simply destroys the serpents, as an eagle can destroy snakes. So before they have to go and get the herbs, he simply consumes the snakes and Rama and Lakshman are freed and they come up with full strength stronger than before. And all the Rakshashas are terrified by this because this powerful um, astra that their warrior Indrajit can do, and he, he, was, he took them out. They were down on the battlefield. No one recovers from this. And yet they recovered from it, and they began to become uh, very uh, frightened by what's happening. And they, they have the story that Rama doesn't remember his, who he really is, and he's, uh, he looks with bewilderment at Garuda, who are you? He says, well, let us just say that we have been close since ancient times. They, the way they have this story, they have that Rama doesn't know his own divinity. They want him to be more human in the story. So that's how the story is told. It's not um, exactly how Yogananda teaches about an avatar, but this is a very ancient story. So Ravana was, had been told that Indrajit had killed Rama and Lakshmana. So now he hears all the monkeys are jubilant and they're cheering and they're excited again. And he's completely bewildered and he becomes very, very angry but also frightened because his son has always been able to kill any enemy with those power, and that's how he's won so many times. So he sends out a, a, another powerful warrior, and that powerful warrior is slain by Rama and Lakshman, and he sends out yet another, and that powerful warrior is slain. And then he sends another, and that warrior is slain. And um, th- they're um, just 
terrified. Ravana just doesn't know what he's going to do. So he takes counsel. Ravana takes counsel with his, his commander-in-chief. And the council says, many told you, my Lord. You know, all that is happening now is what was prophesied. He said there were evil omens in all respects, but you um, disregarded them. So he said, but I will go. And so one more great warrior goes out, his commander-in-chief, and he's, he too is killed. And so this time, Ravana himself comes. And Rama, Hanuman carries Rama as if Hanuman was a chariot, a living chariot. And Rama now is face-to-face with the one who has taken Sita away from him. And he does fierce battle. He completely disarms Ravana and knocks him from his chariot. He's completely helpless. And Rama says, I won't, I won't defeat you in a dishonorable way. Go rest, rearm yourself, and come back tomorrow, and then we'll fight again. And so to humiliate the king is even worse than to kill him, you see. So um, let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and finish the battle. Okay. This story, the the avatars often come at the transition points between the yugas. Yogananda has come as Kali Yuga is shifting into Dwapara Yuga. So he's he's moving us out of the lowest age into a higher age. Um, Krishna came as Dwapara Yuga was ending and Kali Yuga was beginning, but it was a descending cycle. Krishna and Master are essentially the same point on the, on the half circle of the yugas, except that Krishna came when it was going down into Kali Yuga. Yogananda's coming when it's coming up out of it. Rama was when it was coming from Treta Yuga into Dwapara Yuga. So Rama was coming down from a golden age. But the, the, the golden age of Ayodhya, that was a, a very high time, and then it's beginning to fall again, and he... That's that's when the story was said to be, so that would be, you know, thousands of years ago. But it's it's true story, and he was a true avatar because there's so much power in it, and the power is still there. Uh, but it's been so much myth that you have to stop and remember, oh, you know, Rama really was an incarnation. He was a walking, talking, living human. And even though Ravana now has ten heads and Rakshashas can fly... Um, that's just embellishment. There really was some kind of a drama here that in some way it sounds like a very human drama between Rama and Sita. As I was talking at the beginning of this, the Mahabharata is this epic with all these, you know, vast forces. And the the Ramayana is Rama and Sita, Lakshman, Hanuman. It's a very small cast, just a very different story. It's a love story. It's a beautiful love story. And in fact, in one of the versions of the Ramayana that I have, and they were talking about the, roman- the excessive romanticism of women, and they were talking in the Indian context. You know, why, how did the Indian women become so romantic? Rama and Sita, <laughs> how could they not? What a great and glorious story about human love. A man's devotion to his wife, a wife's devotion to her husband. What could be more romantic? It's, it's a noble love story. It's a very noble love story, but nonetheless, it's still a beautiful, it's a love story. It's a lovely tale. She gives up comfort to go off with him. You know, Lakshman, in his devotion, takes care of them both. She is sorely pressed 
by Ravana, but never even considers, never even once considers that she would abandon, no matter what he puts her through. There's just not a chance that she's going to give up her, her, her purity and her devotion to her true husband, whatever this man is going to offer her. She doesn't know. She's there for 10 months. She doesn't know. Does Rama know where he, she is? Has, has Rama been killed? And the worst fear, has he forgotten about me? Has he just gone on? Has he renounced the world in grief? She's totally cut off and surrounded by these evil people. It's not until Hanuman breaks in that she has it confirmed, what she, of course, hopes is true, but she doesn't really know. And then even then, I mean, at the very end, Ravana comes in with her husband's head like this, even then, she's not going to give in to him. He's going to try to, well, Raman's dead. I guess I'll just become your wife. That would be a lot easier than living out here with all these rakshashis and out in this garden. But she just always holds true to the end. Very powerful. And Rama, too. He just, he just moves step by step by step by step till he finds her. He's determined to find her. It's really a very, very beautiful story. Really beautiful story. Yes, question. So um, it, it's kind of a small point, but it, it seemed confusing to me why one of the Rakshashas would be so committed to Dharma just based on your descriptions of Rakshashas <laughs> up to this point as being, you know, bad guys and people eaters and town terrorizing. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, that's the way, that, yeah. And, I'm, and, and I know nobody's totally good and nobody's totally bad in these stories, but why is there this utterly dharmic committed rakshasha in the midst of all this well the way the way the author explains it quite simply is that sometimes in bad families good people are born and sometimes in good people good families bad people are born i mean we, we know this person can have a very honorable and well brought up family and then somebody in the family is just a scoundrel so rakshashas are like a, a race rather than something you become th- Yes. Because it seems yes. to me it was something you become through your No, karma. no, it's a race. And that's why he was a Rakshasha and he had a boon that he couldn't be killed by, the, by this creature or that creature or this creature or that creature. Because all the, the different races are at war. Truthfully, I know that in the, you know, in the huge context of India, all of this is explained. You know, who the Rakshashas were, what they really represented. I, I'm very superficial in my knowledge of this story, as you well know. Yeah, you have to ask Sai Ganesh, <laughs> a resident expert, who have a very, very long answer about all these things. <laughs> Ravana represents evil. As I said at the beginning of this, I feel very grateful that I don't have to try to understand self-realization through the Ramayana. I've, I've, I'm very grateful that I understand self-realization through the teachings of Master and of Swamiji, and then I can come back and really love the Ramayana and find it thrilling, but I don't have to work to reconcile all these different things. But the, the anomalies of the way uh, people cannot be predicted, good people and evil people both, that they can't so easily be predicted is, is one part that doesn't bewilder me. Because we, we're always wanting to put everyone into neat little boxes and we don't fit in neat little boxes. And this is a little... Uh, we were talking a little in the break a little bit about the SRF lawsuit and the book by John Parsons. And there were many reasons why I felt passionate about the necessity 
to carry on that lawsuit and was, was put in a position where our, I was part of the legal team and we got to put a lot of energy into it. We organized the going to the convocation and so on. And I, I developed a very strong reason why I really felt that we needed to try to um, break open SRF a little bit. And you find this when reading John's book a lot, and he, he makes that point by giving all those stories about what that, that history of Yogananda, which is not known. It's perfectly known. I mean, the SRF has all the materials, but they very carefully make sure that we don't know so that Yogananda becomes more and more of a two-dimensional character. He has to be just this sort of pristine, untouchable, who just arrived in America, just kind of walked on water right across the whole country, built Mount Washington, reached thousands of people, and you know, nothing difficult ever happened. No contradictory energy, no betrayals by his own people, no lawsuits, no bad press, no false accusations, no points where he just washed his hands of the whole thing, as I just read, and went to Mexico for a while, just let the whole thing go because he just had it after Dhirananda betrayed him after all that work. He just, he just left the country. The magazine stopped publishing. He just went to Mexico for a while. He just needed to stop. I mean, but you see, it's all so much more dynamic <clears throat> and real when you know that. And what happens if your guru is a two-dimensional character is that you, you try to become a two-dimensional character. And so you have to walk around and you never really can go too far outside the lines. And if you have any bad impulses, you have to feel really guilty about them. And if something really bad happens, you just don't know how you're going to work with it. And you end up like this. And so it's, it's, it's really not helpful. It's not just a question of taste. It's that people come and they are given a false impression of what it is to be a spiritual master and therefore what it is to be a spiritual person. And that to me is very serious. It's a very serious issue. Books are edited by SRF to make you feel guilty, not to make you feel encouraged. So, so now you're in the Ramayana, so, so we don't get too far out of here. You know, and, and everything has been, you know, Rama just becomes more and more fabulous. But he was, an, he was a man. He, he, they have in this story, he breaks down, he cries, he becomes distressed about it, he faints when he feels what Sita's going through. They're trying to make him more real. But, well, Jesus Christ is actually the worst example because, you know, Jesus was, he was a virgin birth and his mother was the immaculate conception. And, I mean, it's like we just want to make sure that, that he's everything other than we are because it's out of devotion, but it's misguided. Because we, we have no connection then. We don't realize that it's not merely that Jesus understands what I'm going through. Jesus has gone through what I'm going through. It's really, it's a huge step. It's very, very important. And so I like the parts about all of this being real because there you have it. There you, this is what it's like, even these great epics. We have to finish because Rama hasn't really gotten Sita back yet. Okay. So, now, Ravana has been completely humbled and defeated by Rama, and he really has begun suddenly to think that all these bad omens and all these bad things might actually be true. So he decides he has to wake up Kumbhakarna, <laughs> who right after he's, you know, been come to the council, Kumbhakarna has gone back to sleep. He really needs him. 
So he sends his servants and they say when Kumbhakarna wakes up after his sleep, he's really, really hungry and you don't want him just to consume you by accident. So they have a huge amount of food and they make a tremendous amount of noise and Kumbhakarna manages to wake up and then he immediately consumes this vast amount of food and then he's brought to Ravana. And then Ravana says, while you were asleep, Rama has become a real menace. He's gotten across the sea. He's here now. He's annihilated and defeated all our warriors. He's defeated me. What are we going to do? And Kumbhakarna, um, first he's moved by Ravana's speech. Then he remembers that it's Ravana himself who got us in this, this problem. And he, Kumbhakarna berates his brother. Your mad lust for this woman has brought our city to the edge of ruin. And then Ravana says, you know, how dare you speak to me like this? And Kumbhakarna says, you're my brother. I'll go to my death if that's what I have to do. So he goes out and he starts fighting. And Kumbhakarna is so powerful. He, he fights with everyone. But finally, I mean, he's just, you know, cutting a swath of death through the monkey army. And he's, he's the most powerful warrior. No one can stop him. And finally, Ravana just is right in front of him and begins to fight and begins to fight. And you see all the fury that Rama has held in for all this time finally begins to come out and he cuts off his limbs and then he cuts off his head and Kumbhakarna finally is dead. And when Ravana hears that his brother has died, suddenly he becomes you know, filled with remorse. Why didn't I listen? And then Ravana begins to suspect. He said, this is no ordinary mortal. And so Ravana begins to talk. This must be the Lord Narayana himself. And there's some stories that tell you that Ravana is, in fact, a great devotee of God, and he took this role so that he could be in this relationship to the Lord. I don't know why people say all that, but it's fascinating. They say it. Okay. So Indrajit goes back out again on the behalf of his father, and once again he binds them with his ostras. And this time Garuda isn't there, but Hanuman has to go to this certain mountain to get these herbs. So Hanuman goes to the mountain. These are the little scenes that are put in the story. He goes to the mountain, but when he gets there, he can't remember which herbs he's supposed to bring, so he picks up the whole mountain, and he brings the mountain back. And even as the hill gets close to Rama and Lakshman, they revive again, and they begin to become strong. So, then... They play another trick, and this time they try to play the trick on Rama, and they try to bring to Rama the corpse of Sita and prove that, well, after all of this, you know, we've had her under our power and we've just killed her. And so this chariot comes and there's the, the corpse of Sita in it, and Rama's just overcome at the sight of it, and he falls down dead. But Vibhishana, fortunately, is there, and he says, Rama would never allow Sita, Ravana would never allow Sita to be killed at this point. His lust for her is mad. He would never kill her. And so then they, they're um, revived. So, so now they start again. Just a moment, let me fight here. They fight, they fight, they keep fighting, they keep fighting. They fight a little bit more. Then they fight a little bit more. Then they fight a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> finally. Finally. Brahman, Ravana, confront. And there's nothing really to describe. Finally, Ramana, Rama triumphs. All ten of Ravana's heads are cut off. And Ravana is, is over. Okay.
Rama is honorable, though, he says to Vibhishana. He said, your brother fought hard and honorably. He was courageous in the face of death. He had tremendous power, and when the hour came, he, he, he stood with all his will and did his very best. And even though he was slain, he died courageously. He says to Vibhishana, you must give him funeral rites commensurate with his noble qualities. So Vibhishana goes to do it. And Rama also says to Vibhishana, whatever um, complaint you had with him, death ends it. There's no, there's no virtue in, on your part in maintaining your malice toward this man now that he's gone. The incarnation is ended. All these little truths, big truths and little truths. So you were in dispute. Now it's finished. Now we honor him for his good qualities and we go on. And so he also, um, Rama does the ceremony and Vibhishana becomes king of the city. And so everything starts moving forward again. So then Rama says to Hanuman, you know, you know where Sita is, go tell Sita. And so Hanuman comes to Sita and says, Rama has triumphed. And Sita says, you know, take me to him. And Hanuman looks at the Rakshashas who's been guarding her and says, I'm going to slay these demons for the way they've treated you. And Sita said, they were just acting in obedience to their king. He said, now that their king is slain, there's no reason to punish them. The, the uh, compassionate response of the mother. So, Sita wants to be taken to um, where Rama is, of course. But Rama says, the message from Rama is that she must bathe and clothe, her, clothe herself as a queen again, put on jewels, put on silks, and then be brought to Rama in a palanquin. Sita says, I want to go to him just as I am. Hanuman says he doesn't quite understand, but Rama has been behaving in a way that they don't quite, uh, they can't quite comprehend. He says, this is the order from Rama, this is what you must do. So she dressed herself as she asked, and all the monkeys and everyone is crowding around, and Rama orders that Sita's, um, you know, that the curtain should be open and that her veil should be removed so that all of these people have fought for her and they have, they have lost their brothers, they've risked their lives. So much has happened that they, need, they, they have a right to see Sita. This is all their family. But still, Rama is very reserved and Lakshman and Hanuman, they don't understand and so Sita arrives, she sees her husband after this year, she's bedecked like a queen, she stands in front of him, um, she addresses him with respect, she begins to weep, and Rama still stands aloof, and he says, I've killed the enemy, I have rescued you, I have done my duty as a kshatriya, you know, the, I owe the woman was the duty of a kshatriya to defend the weak, and so you were taken advantage of in your weakness. I have done it. I vowed that I would rescue, and now my vow is fulfilled. Sita was, this is not what she expected to hear. This is not what anyone around ex- expected to hear. And then Rama adds, he said, but I, I want you to understand. He said, I don't want people to say, I did all of this. I risked the lives of my friends. I killed people in battle out of mere attachment to you. 
I didn't just do this because you were my wife and I loved you and I wanted you back. I did this because it was my duty as a king and it was my duty as a dharmic man. This is what I had to do. Amazing um, nuance in there. And then comes the parts of the story that some people really dispute. And he says, and more than that, for almost a year you have lived away from me in the house of another man. And he was, she was even carried away physically by him. And he says, a cloud of doubtfulness, you know, is over your good name at this point. And, and then he says, I can't take you back. Now, he said, how can I take you back after you've lived a year with the, in, the, in the house of another man? He said, you, 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 you can, you, I will protect you. I will take care of you. But I, a kshatriya can't take back a, a wife who has lived so long in the house of someone else. Sita, who's no weakling herself. I mean, she's had about enough of him. <laughs> you know, said, how, how dare you speak to me like that? How dare you accuse me of such a thing? I can't believe that my ears are hearing this. These are the words of a, a low-class person. You know, a low-class person might doubt the um, nobility of his wife, but... How can you doubt it? You have, you, you're not behaving as you are. Is it my fault that I was carried away by this Rakshasha? And so she declares, only one course is open to me. And she has Lakshman fetch logs. She's going to enter a fire. She's been so dishonored, she's just going to throw herself into the fire. Lakshman is looking at Rama, just, why are you allowing this to happen? And Rama is completely impassive. Nothing at all. So Sita is commanding it, so this fire is brought and the flames are there and then Sita just steps right into the middle of the fire like this. And then suddenly, as she's standing there, celestial beings appear all around her. And Agni, the god of fire himself, materializes in the middle of the fire and the flames are not touching her or her garments or her hair and he, the Lord of fire takes her out of the fire and puts her in front of Rama and says, Your, you know, the fire could not consume her. Her purity is so great that she is protected by that even into the fire. And then Rama suddenly comes into himself and he looks at his wife with the, with the love and the affection that she had been seeking from him all this time. He says, I never doubted you. But for the sake of all these others, so that there would be no taint on your name ever, he said, it was necessary that you be put to the test. So, because he was the king, and he couldn't take her back and have other people whisper that a year was a long time. Maybe she, you know, who knows what really happened there. Is she really worthy of being our queen? And do we really, can we really trust her? And all of those things. She was put to the test. And Rama himself acted as if she needed to prove herself even to him. And so then, finally, they are reunited. They go into the flying chariot. And they go back to Ayodhya. (laughs) and live happily ever after.
Now, in some versions of the story, though, they don't. It's actually very interesting. There's two main versions. That's, that's the story that I always like to tell. But in the other story, he sends her away. He sends her away. He says, it's just too much. There's too much taint. We have to send you away. Swamiji's answer to that, I, I've, heard, I've heard Swami have a serious discussion, but why would Rama actually send Sita away? You know, that, that kind of discussion. Swamiji says, well, because no one lives happily ever after. <laughs> You know, that you do your duty in this world, but you do your duty because it's your duty to do it, not because in the end everything just comes out the way you want it. So, but I think him testing her is enough. But there's two ways that the story goes. But we can't remember the Mahabharata, Karna. Karna's great failing, even though he was such a great man in so many ways. He represented the quality of being attached to happiness in this world. And as a result, it never quite worked out for him, as we recall. So there's a very serious lesson there. The Ramayana is hardly a happily ever after story, but still, that's, that's why Swamiji said you know, one version of it has it that way. They accomplish what they accomplish. She remains loyal to him, he remains loyal to her. But it's not as if in the end, then everything just reverts back to personal desire like that. Duty is everything. This very um, spiritual path is what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. What's night to the worldly man is day to the yogi. And the only reason that it works is because when we see the living examples of it, their lives are so much more attractive. The, The lives of saints and saintly people and the stories of saints and saintly people are so much more attractive than any alternative. And when we ourselves, you know, slog through it, all that Rama had to slog through, you know, he, he, first he was going to be crowned, and then he gets exiled, and then he has to fight Rakshashas, and then Sita gets stolen, and then he has to... I mean, just all of these step after step, and Hanuman has to go through, everybody has to go through... Um, if, we, if one does all of that with dharma and with joy, you end up in a place that you really want to be. And you find out yourself that that's what you want. Yes. So you said that uh, uh, Rama was really a person and Sita was really a person they're too? In, they're, they're, incarn- they're avatars. He's an avatar. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that he didn't live on earth. Well, okay, yeah. sure. And she was his designated... Uh, consort and such a m- such a man would have uh, a, a very high being for his wife. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And Rama is reputed. Yes. When Rama killed Ravana's Ravana, Rama killed Ravan Ravana's brother. The one that starts with an S. Um, and you. The one that was asleep and eats yes, a lot. Yes, Kumbhakarna. Kumbhakarna. Oh, uh-huh. it doesn't start with an S. No. Kumbhakarna. Uh-huh. <laughs> he did it with anger. No, I didn't. I, I, if I said that, that would be false. I oh. said all the. I did say that, but what I mean is all the fury of all this time came out and he fought like fur- furiously. He did it with anger. He did it with righteous anger. Righteous anger. That's what you want to see. He was righteously angry. Kumbhakarna, here, Vibhishana abandoned Ravana. Kumbhakarna also knew that Ravana was wrong, and then he, he still fought anyway. 
I mean, this is the argument, which, which is the, well, what do you do? Do you remain loyal to your friends even in delusion, or do you abandon them when they're dharma, when they've abandoned dharma to such an extent? So is anger actually the right word? Righteous anger. Righteous anger? Righteous anger. Righteous anger. Right. Righteous, righteous anger is appropriate action, forceful if necessary, for the sake of a cause, not for the sake of self-interest. Oh, because I, I, I just know the self-interest kind of anger. Right. <laughs> yeah. Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. Righteous anger. I mean, he, he, it was force. He exercised tremendous force. William the Conqueror was a warrior. You know, he, he was a soldier. He, he fought. He killed people. He had a greater dharma. Krishna was a soldier. Arjuna was a soldier. They, force is required. I mean, these are the, also the lessons of the epics. You don't just kind of sleep your way into heaven. You know there's a powerful force that comes to pull you off of dharma and you have to fight it back with a powerful force. You have to give everything you can to it. And you can't do it lightly. I mean, Swami talks about Master that you could see in him. He'd been Arjuna in a past life. He'd been William the Conqueror in a past life. Um, Fernando, who was fighting the Moors in Spain, he said you could just see it in him. He was, a, he was five foot five, and he was an, a, an Indian man, but he said you could just see that willpower, that energy, that determination, that courage, that just unrelenting commitment to do whatever is required. You can hear it in his voice, too. You can hear it in his voice, and, and heavens with their perspective, you just do what you need to do. That's what Krishna says to Arjuna. Oh, come on, Arjuna, you're so being nervous all about this, but this has to be done. And you just have to kill these people. It's just what has to be done. It was symbolic, but it was also literal. Very interesting. This, it just takes your little brain and just goes boom like that, and puts it way out somewhere else. And for some people, you know, be a kshatriya is just what you should be. A, I mean, a real literal soldier to have the courage to do that. And so sometimes when people are... They, they, they appear to have lost control and, and they're screaming and yelling. It might be righteous. Maybe. I, I, you, you can't generalize. You can't generalize. I guess I just never... When, when Jesus and Rama and Yogananda express righteous anger, they've never lost control. They have perceived what is necessary in this situation to accomplish what has to be accomplished. That's quite different than someone who's just become unhinged. It's, it's, they've never, it's, it's energy in service to Dharma. A person who's just ranting and raving, that's why it's not, I mean, even if they're, they say their cause is righteous, if their behavior is adharmic, then it's, they've lost contact with it. Yes? I know, as a teacher, I have to be very strict and stern, and I might come across as mm-hmm. mad, but yeah, I, ha- I have lost it, you know, <laughs> one or two times, and they could tell the difference. Yeah. And I could tell the difference. Exactly. But the other time, you're just doing the needful in order to accomplish a righteous end. And if, if anger is what's required, anger is what's required. Another teacher chimes in. Well, yeah, good example is when, um, you know, little Athena goes to run into the street, uh-huh. and I need to shout 
no, right. I'm not angry she ran into the street. I'm trying to protect this exactly. person that I'm in charge of. And so it might come across to her that I'm upset, mm-hmm. but I'm in no way. I just need to be firm and Absolutely. say these are the boundaries and this is not where we go. Yeah. And we, we stay on this side of the sidewalk. And you know, That's what Swami says. If your child runs into the street, you don't, you don't say, oh, Johnny, don't run into the street. You, you know, you raise your voice, you grab them firmly. Swami would even say you might spank him a little, but that upsets people very much if you say that. But, you know, you, you make the point. Right. And so Yogananda had something to accomplish. Rama had something to accomplish. You make the point. And you make the point with full force. You don't hold back. But it doesn't mean that, it, that you're angry in your heart. It just means that a show of force is what's required here for, for a genuinely righteous cause. But Swamiji, you know, when people talk about politics and this and that, uh, peace demonstrations, things. He said, well, yes, if that's what you feel to do, but do it correctly. You know, do it with, with, with self-control, with conscious commitment, with, with right energy. How can you create peace if you're really angry? If you, if you yourself are creating dissonant vibrations, the net result of what you're doing will not be peace. But you may still take very strong action with very strong force, but what you are inside and what you're manifesting, are, it's all about whether you're in control or not, and, and whether you're conscious or not. It just brings up when, uh, how, I don't know how many years ago it was, but when uh, some people from here went down to a self-realization fellowship and the, um, the, convocation? Uh, the convocation. I mean, that wasn't in anger, but it was, it was with force, Oh, no, wasn't that was it? one of the most fun experiences we ever had. But it was important to, to do that. Yeah, it was a very forceful experience. And Swamiji was concerned about our going because he, he, he was very concerned that we would be... He was afraid, afraid is perhaps not, he was concerned that we might become angry. And he was very, very strong about it. And he, he made us promise that if we felt any anger creeping in, we would stop. I was certain we wouldn't become angry. It just never crossed my mind that we would become angry. Because I just didn't think we would. I said to him, sir, you, you underestimate your training of us in the real sense. But he was very concerned that if, if it moved to anger that we had to promise that we would stop. And uh, one person lost, um, lost their center for five seconds. And then he stopped. But we were so filled with joy. It was such a joyful time. We were chanting and singing and holding protest signs and informing our gurubais where their money was going. And it was just a really, really happy time. I had, I had, to, I had this big sign. That we, we held signs. We, we didn't put them on sticks because that was considered too aggressive, so we just held them. And I had to hold mine like that because I was smiling so hard behind it. <laughs> so there's lots of times of me standing there just like that because I could stop grinning. It was so delicious. I can't end the whole Ramayana on that, but maybe I will. It was, it was righteous war. You know, we were, we, had, we were really being mistreated, and the, and the SRF board of directors had kept it a complete secret from their membership and from their own monks and nuns, and, and they all gathered at the convocation, and so we just blew the lid off the secret. Just blew it off by standing and handing out literature and... And uh, it changed a lot because it just, you know, just took the secret up. They didn't know because they just didn't know the way their organization works. So we had to inform them. 
And so it was a very righteous cause. We were, by anybody's measurement, very forceful and very out there, but not verbally and not in any way. The force was just by our presence and by our commitment. That'll do. Okay, enough.